Well, let's uh, turn then just once more to the passage of Scripture that we've been looking at over the last few days. The Transfiguration, as it's called. We find it in Luke and chapter 9 of his Gospel. (coughs) That's on page 1600. Luke chapter 9. And at verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. And uh, again, Uh, This morning we'll focus on verse 30, which we uh, began to look at yesterday, but we'll continue it today. In verse 30, behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. We saw that uh, yesterday, but today they also spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, over the uh, last few days, with the help of God, uh, we ascended this Mount of Transfiguration, in a sense, along with Christ and Peter, James, and John. And we began to look at the events that transpired there as our Saviour was transfigured and suddenly accompanied by Moses and Elijah, embodied in their own redeemed bodies. Now, this morning I'd like us to linger a little longer on the mountain top 
before we begin to descend from it uh, tonight and on Monday evening. You'll remember that the reason for climbing the mountain originally was to pray. The apostles themselves needed to pray, but our Saviour particularly needed to pray, and he consecrated this whole night on top of the mount in order to pray to his Father. As we saw, the first burden of his prayer was for the disciples, and we saw why. It was a prayer for them that they would return to their original humility and childlikeness of spirit and become teachable and accept what he was telling them regarding the necessity of his own suffering and death, even for their own sake. And we saw something of how the Transfiguration addressed that, revealing his glory as the Son, and a command from the Father saying, Hear him, listen to him, and listen to him alone. But there's a second prayer, remember, or a second burden in our Lord's Prayer. And this burden is related to himself. And it arises out of the new situation in which the Lord finds himself. And to understand that properly, there are three things that we need to connect together and to see together. And the first of this, these is that it is a new time in our Lord's ministry. He has reached what many people have noticed to be a kind of half way point. We saw that in his teaching. It's also true in terms of where he must go and what he must do. He has taken the disciples far north to Caesarea Philippi where these events happen. Now he is turning south and he's doing so for the last time because he is beginning the journey to Jerusalem. It's a long journey but its destination is Jerusalem and for the last time he has travelled there several times, but on this occasion he knows that he will not come out of it without his suffering and his death. And that means that he must set himself towards it. He must consecrate himself for that. Now that's even more difficult than it was before. And that's due to the fact that the suffering and the death has become something that lies so heavily upon him. And the more it begins to lie on him, the more difficult it is to obey. Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience through suffering. That doesn't mean that he hadn't been obedient before. It just meant that he discovered what obedience really meant by having to do it in contexts of suffering and ever greater suffering. And here there's no doubt as he begins to speak of his suffering and death that the shadow of Calvary, as Hugh Martin famously referred to it, is beginning to fall on him. He feels it heavily and so he has to consecrate himself. So there's that new time in his ministry and the new teaching. 
it stands to reason that the more you speak about something, the more it lies on your own mind and consciousness. It's one thing for him to have been teaching the kingdom of God, as he had done for a year and a half, to be teaching its mysteries and its wonders and its ethics, how to be salt and light in this world, how to be poor in spirit, how to mourn, how to hunger and thirst for righteousness, how to pray, how to fast. It's one thing for him to teach who he was himself as the only begotten Son of God. It's another thing to focus on what he has to do, his suffering and his death. And that new teaching just begins to lie and to weigh upon him. And with that new consecration and new teaching, there is also the fact of a, a new experience in his life where he begins to be alone to an extent and degree that he hadn't been alone before. Now, I suppose there's always a sense in which our Lord was alone, in the sense in which it's always difficult for a sinless, holy person to be in a sinful unholy world. But he had always been surrounded, at least with some who understood and who sympathized. But our Lord knew, even from the scriptures, that it was his appointment to experience greater and greater solitude until he was finally in a place of utter forsakenness on the cross of Calvary. The scriptures told him that even as a child he would read of himself that he must tread the winepress alone and of the people there would be none to help. He would read Psalm 22 even as a child which his spirit had authored before coming into this world that he would look for comforters and find none. Psalm 69. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us later that it's by himself that he purged our sins. Now I think the obvious meaning of that text, the, the one that comes before us most clearly, is that he did the work alone. There was no help of it. He looked around. There was none to help. His own right arm brought salvation. He died the death. He did the work. And there was none to help by himself. But the aloneness of it doesn't just refer to the fact that he did the work himself, but rather that he did it on his own, feeling an acute sense of loneliness and feeling a sense of abandonment. As I, I mentioned in the, in the prayer, it's something that struck me just in the reading of these things, I looked for one to pity me. And really struck me in the same way before, very conscious indeed that there had been none to pity him, but I looked for it. There was, well, what's common in ourselves. We're made that way. We're made to be in company, not to be in solitude. We're made to be forever in company, not forever in solitude. In fact, one of the most common forms of punishment is solitary confinement. There's a sense in which you can punish a person by simply doing nothing to them, but absolutely leaving them alone. 
because it was never good for man to be alone and it was not good for this man to be alone. But the moment Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, the moment a bit of a barrier begins to come up and during this six-day journey to the Mount of the Transfiguration, the Lord knows that he's beginning to be forsaken. It's the beginning of a process that will end in an acute sense of abandonment that you and I can't understand and will never thank God be called upon to endure it, at least if you are a Christian. If not, if you are not a Christian, solitariness will be one of your greatest punishments. It's an interesting thing that every window we are given into heaven in the Bible has company. Every window we are given into hell has solitariness. The rich man there has no to help them at all. Well, Christ experienced such a thing and I'll come to that in a moment. So he is beginning to feel alone. Like the sparrow on the housetop or the pelican in the wilderness. And that was a burden to his pure and his holy nature. But still he's got to set his face for Jerusalem. And as Isaiah says, he will set it like a flint. But as he does so, he asks God to help him, to accompany him, to strengthen him for that journey. And of course, it's in that sense that the transfiguration becomes an answer to that prayer. Consecration first, help afterwards. Duty first, reward follows. Let's not forget that. We very often ask for things to be the other way around. We ask for God to give us everything first and we'll do the thing afterwards. You often hear it in connection with the Lord's table. Grant me a blessing and I will come to the table. And the Lord says, you come to the table and I will grant you a blessing because that's the way the Lord works so the transfiguration in a sense is the Father's answer to Christ's prayer and it's a glorious answer because what the Father does for him is to fill his son's (coughs) soul to fill it with an abundance of the joy that is set before him something hitherto that Christ sees by faith and looks forward to in hope but amazingly just for a moment of time he he is given to experience it in his soul a foretaste of heaven that's what this is now I think I mentioned that on Thursday evening that the Lord does that for ourselves too at times he gives us a foretaste for heaven And sometimes we speak of times where uh, we have experienced heaven and earth. I'm sure if you've been some length of time in the Christian way that you will experience times like that. Perhaps it comes in a service of this kind. When psalms are sung, the word is read and the word is preached, you will say, just like Jacob said at Bethel, well, that was none other than the house of God and that was the gate of heaven. Uh, Perhaps you were coming to God's house like Jacob came to Bethel that night expecting nothing but you met God and when God meets with you like that it becomes a heaven and earth 
It can happen in a gathering of the Lord's people of fellowship, and we recall fellowships like that. When the Lord comes in, and the thinking is clear, and the meditation is good, and one person shares with another, the other shares back with the person, and there is a fellowship, and heaven for a moment has come to earth. It can happen on your own, perhaps on your own bed. As you meditate upon the Lord, heaven comes down to earth. But when I'm saying that heaven comes to earth here, I mean it in a completely different sense, or not in a different sense, but in a higher sense. Heaven comes onto this mountaintop in a way in which heaven never came to earth before and never came to earth since. And I mean that absolutely unique. Nothing like this happened before and nothing like it has happened since. Now, when I say that heaven came to earth, I suppose what I mean is this, that God took down the things that create the very essence of heaven and he planted them for a moment on the mountain top. And when you think about it, you'll see that that's exactly what happened. That is the Father's own presence. That is the presence of glory. And that is the presence of the glorified saints. Now, it's the last of these that I want to focus on with you, but the first two are worth mentioning. And in fact, the first is first in the order of importance, if not in the order of events, and that's the visible presence of his heavenly Father. Now, that ordinarily is something that Christ had to wait for, just as we have to wait for it. Uh, God is a God we see by faith, and we endure, just like Moses did, seeing him who is invisible. For Christ, it was the same. Although there was an intimate and perfect fellowship, between himself and his humanity and his Father in heaven, a fellowship that was holy and unbroken, it's still true that that fellowship existed by faith. There was something that the Lord was not able to see. He had to experience it by faith and not by sight. The fact of the matter is that he could not be as close to his Father on this earth in his humiliation and in his humanity as he would be once he entered into glory and as he put it himself be glorified with the glory which he had before the world was but he looked forward to the day when he would see the father in glory in his own humanity but lo and behold God allows him to glimpse it now. Because part of the transfiguration consists in the glory cloud coming over himself and enveloping him and Moses and Elijah. Uh, But there was a special word in that glory cloud for himself. Words of assurance and approval. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, of course, that was addressed to the disciples. Of course it was. 
But we needn't think there was no reference to the Saviour. On these great moments of consecration, it's amazing how a voice comes from heaven to strengthen him. The Father puts his stamp of approval on it. He goes into the waters of baptism to identify with his people and their judgment. And a voice comes, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here, too, he consecrates himself to his duty, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I suppose it's interesting and significant that at Gethsemane, which is the greatest consecration of all, when he accepts the cup and agrees to drink it, the Father significantly doesn't speak. An angel is sent to strengthen him. One, even earlier, there were several angels that ministered to him when he was tempted in the wilderness. But on that occasion, one. Can we just say that it's his last strength? And that it's his, his last outward help? Even that's an indication that everything's withdrawing. The light is proceeding, and the darkness, and the curse, and the judgment, and the pains of hell are coming in. But here, the Father's presence is there. And that is part of what constitutes heaven. You know, there are times when we undoubtedly speak of heaven and think of heaven as though Christ was everything and all in all. But without taking away from the Saviour, and I know it doesn't take away from the Saviour. I know the Saviour is glad to say this. <clears throat> Christ is not all in all, somehow to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. That's not how our Saviour taught us to view heaven. He taught us to view heaven as his Father's house. And not just his Father's house, but he says, your Father also. I am ascending, he says, to my Father and to your Father. And was it not the blessed ministry of our Lord to bring us back to the Father and to know him as our Father and to enjoy him as our Father forever? How can we diminish the fatherhood of God in heaven? How can we exclude our Father by simply focusing on our Lord Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And make no mistake, friend, you will know in heaven that you are in the presence of your Father. And one of the things that's quite noteworthy in the insights we're given into heaven in the book of the Revelation is that not only is the presence of Christ obvious, but the presence of the Holy Spirit is obvious in the seven blazing lamps before the throne, and the glory of the Father is obvious to the eye too around the throne. Now certainly we don't see him in the same way in which we see Christ, but nonetheless we see him, and we know him to be our Father. The presence of the Father is essential to heaven. And that was on the mountaintop. The second thing on the mountaintop, or the second part of heaven on the mountain, 
is the personal glorification of those who are present there. Now here, we have to leave out Peter, James and John. They are not transformed. They are not transfigured. But there is a very real sense in which they are onlookers rather than participants. Now I, I don't mean to make that too stark, but nonetheless there's a very strong sense in which that is so. They are onlookers, observers, at a, at a transformation and a transfiguration and a heavenly experience that belongs to somebody else. It is Moses and Elijah and Christ who appear in glory. And it is the glory of Christ that is glorifying Moses and Elijah. He, for a moment, is glorified. He is given his reward. He is given a foretaste of the glory which will be his when his work is finished and when he goes home. After all, what more could he ask for than God and two of his redeemed saints, indicating a finished work, not just there in the purity of their souls, but there in the glory of their resurrected bodies, or in Elijah's case, a transformed body. And that is glory. That's, that's what his life's about. That's what he came for. That's what his ministry was for. And there are no doubt times when he is so enveloped by darkness that it becomes difficult to see such a thing clearly. We can understand that very well ourselves. In our case, sin contributes to that. But sometimes in the Lord's experience is just the sheer amount of sins and unbelievers that are just crowding in upon his mind and spirit all the time. Well, here the Lord lifts him up physically and lifts him up spiritually and says what's more, he says, here, taste it. This is the glory that is to be yours. Here you are with glorified saints and with my presence just for a moment of time. Heaven and earth is a wonderful thing when you have it. If you haven't really experienced it, I'm sure you will, because the Lord just grants such a thing to us from time to time, but how wonderful it was in the Lord's case. Now, the third part of this heaven and earth is the part I want to look at just a bit, bit longer with you in more detail. It's the presence of the heavenly saints, Moses and Elijah, which we, be, we began to look at yesterday. Uh, for a moment, they too are just brought down to the earth. It's an astonishing thing. Here they've been in in Moses' case, for one and a half thousand years, he has been in glory. One and a half thousand years. In Elijah's case, he has been over 800 years in glory. And suddenly, I mean, angels are used to receiving errands. Angels are constantly in the presence of God being commissioned to come down to this world and to return to God. As Jacob saw in his vision at Bethel, there is a stairway to heaven and these angels are always ascending and descending on that stairway. Not so with the saints in glory, but here's an exception. What a wonderful exception it is. What a marvellous thing it was that day when God said to Moses and Elijah that they have an errand to accomplish. 
what an honour it was. I mean, sometimes the, the Lord lays his hands on people and just gives them a, a staggering honour. It's a great honour for ourselves today to be at the Lord's table. Who would have thought perhaps one day that we would be here when here we are? But what an honour this was. You are to go down to the earth from which you came to stand on a mountain beside your Saviour and I want you to speak these words to them. The amazing thing is that they, like all the saints in glory, know exactly where Christ is and they observe him with interest. How could they not? How could they not? They follow his ministry with the greatest interest. It's because of his ministry they are where they are. But but as they're coming to Hermon, what a staggering thing for Moses and Elijah to hear that you must go down there too. You've got something to do and something to speak. (laughs) Now, the amazing thing is that on Mount well, I, I called it Hermon. I don't know if it's Hermon. It's always assumed to be Mount Hermon, and it probably is. It is It is where it is in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi and so on, and we're told that it's a high mountain, and it fits the circumstance well, but really it doesn't matter. But on this mountain top, there's a strange reversal of roles. Normally, Christ is the comforter of his people. But here they seem to be sent for his benefit. That's part of his humiliation, to be comforted by those for whom he alone is the only comfort. It shouldn't strike us as strange in a way that the redeemed saints of heaven comfort Christ if we consider that the angels did. I mean, that was part of his humiliation too. After his temptation in the wilderness, when he was so weak in body, and with a weakness of soul too and a certain strength angels came and ministered to him and as I mentioned earlier in Gethsemane it was going to be the case that an angel came after his bloody sweat after all he endured an angel came and ministered to him actually the word in the gospel says strengthened him strengthened him isn't it astonishing that he was called the strength of Israel should be strengthened by a creature that he made himself. And if that's so, we can well understand how these two could be a means of strength too. But how did they do that? Well, as in every fellowship, they, they strengthen by speaking. And not just speaking, but the way in which they speak There's something about what they say and how they say it that is a means of strength and encouragement to the Lord. Let me take first what they say, and this takes us directly to our text. If you just read it again, we're told that Moses and Elijah, in verse 31, (coughs) spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now some of you will be aware that this word decease is a bit of an unusual word. In the old King James version the word is death, the death that he would accomplish. The New King James normally has a little quote here, uh, a little note sorry, and 
you refer, it's placed beside the word disease, puts you into the margin, and it gives you an alternative translation, which is departure. Now that's getting to it. Because the Greek word here is, and you might be surprised at this, the Greek word used here is the word exodus. <coughs> now we know the word exodus very well. It's the title of the second book of scripture. So Moses and Elijah spoke of the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Now we all know what an exodus is. An exodus is to exit essentially. It's to go out of one place and with a view to going into another. It actually carries the idea of going out from one place to a better place. If there's an exodus in your life, it carries the idea of um, liberation into a place of fullness and liberty and blessing. Now, it's an interesting thing and a significant thing that both Moses and Elijah experienced an exodus. They were well fit to talk about it. If you think about Moses himself, well, we actually associate him with the Exodus, and we're seeing that as we're working our way through the book of Exodus on Sabbath mornings. He wrote the book of Exodus. He led the Exodus. He led the people of God as an under-shepherd under the hand of God, skillfully, the psalmist tells us, he and Aaron, but he especially led the people out of Egypt to a promised land, to a better place. He took them from darkness to light. He took them from bondage to liberty, from the tyranny of Pharaoh uh, to the liberty of God. He took them from the ignorance under which they were laboring in Egypt to the knowledge of the law and the promises and the gospel that were given so fully at Exodus in chapter 20 and onwards, the covenant that God was making with them. He took them from all that to all this. Now, is that not a significant thing? What about Elijah? Well, he had a strange exodus too. Of all the prophets, of all the many who lived ever, with the exception of Enoch a long, long time ago, he exited this world with all its darkness and difficulties and trials and tribulations, and he had a kind of exodus that was quite unique. He he was raised up in bodily form in what's called a chariot of fire, fiery chariot. Now, I suppose when we think of that, uh, we, we think of uh, vehicles and wheels. There are no vehicles and wheels. The chariot consists of fire. It's a fiery chariot. Um, but that in itself is a figure for the angelic beings who are themselves fiery beings. He makes his angels um, fire. He makes his spirits, his angels, fiery beings. Seraphim, burning ones, which is what the word means. What that tells us essentially is that Elijah's exodus consisted in the angels of God being sent as a kind of chariot of fire to bring up this prophet of God and he had his own exodus. He left this world and where did he go? Well, from where he came here, into the presence of God. 
like Enoch, the only one to enter without tasting of death. Changed and transformed. So both of them are well fitted to speak to Christ because the exodus events that they both have have something to say to the same. They spoke to him about the exodus that he would accomplish or he would fulfill at Jerusalem. Now there are many uh, exodus events. I'll put it that way. I don't know what the plural of an exodus is. But there are many exodus events in a way associated with the Lord's life. Uh, Micah tells us that he shall come forth unto me. That's how the Father speaks about Christ. He speaks about him going forth from the Father, Micah 5, and then coming forth unto me. It's kind of an exodus from this world towards himself. I think that encourages us to think of every step of Christ's ministry as a move upwards, a move back to the Father. He had his own descent into this world, but he comes out of the womb towards the Father. He comes out from his place of preparation towards the Father. He comes out of the temptation in the wilderness towards the Father. He comes out of the waters of baptism towards the Father. Constant coming out. But the exodus referred to here is an exodus associated with Jerusalem. It's an exodus associated with Jerusalem. And I think that takes us first of all uh, to think about an exodus from the sufferings and the pains of hell. An exodus from the sufferings and the pains of hell. Oh Lord knew he had to sink into it. I sink, he says, into deep mire. The floods overwhelmed him. And you know, no one sinks into hell and comes out of it. Nobody does. Famously, Dante wrote in his uh, poem, in his famous work in the Middle Ages, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Abandon everything. Abandon hope is so significant because it's just the sheer endlessness of it. But on this occasion, it's different. Who would have imagined an exodus from this? Now, there's a darkness in our Lord's experience that, let's face it, we can't enter into it. Now and again, we try to understand it. Now and again, we try to explain it. As the Greek liturgy says, by thine unknown sufferings, O Lord, deliver us. Unknown they are, unknown they will be. I suppose the darkness that came over the cross at 12 o'clock is a way of saying to us that there's something passing here that we don't know or understand. That darkness is certainly symbolizing the darkness that is falling over our <coughs> Savior's own soul at that particular time, because there's no doubt that it's at that particular time that the sufferings of his body are utterly eclipsed by the sufferings of his soul. But the darkness is also a way of saying, well, you, you cannot step into this. And indeed we cannot. Hell, to some extent, had been let loose in our Saviour's mind before. It had been let loose in experience. 
The devil was allowed to speak to him in the wilderness. The devil was allowed to tempt him. The devil was allowed to assault him. But on such occasions, his work was minimized and it was restrained. I suppose even on this occasion, to some extent, it is restrained and minimized too. Or is it? Is the devil allowed to do all he can? To spend his greatest strength? Well, we would have to say it was still restrained. But who can imagine the temptations, the blasphemies, everything that crowded in to the Lord's mind and heart? None of us can. Three hours that seemed like an utter eternity. Physicists tell us that time and spaces are a remarkable thing. Some people are now speculating that what could pass in a short space of time on Earth may have taken an a vast amount of time to, to pass in other parts of the universe, especially at the point of creation, which has huge implications for Genesis, by the way. But we know that in the mind, time is a very relative thing. Very relative thing. It's not difficult to say that these hours felt like an eternity to the one who was experiencing I suppose if he could detach himself from these feelings for a moment and you were able to ask him, in what state are you in now? He would say, I am in in a state that never ends. I see no end. Just the darkness and the desolation of the hell that he experienced. Who can come out of that? Well, he did. This was a death or an exodus that he would accomplish a wonderful word. At the cross, when these three hours were finished, what did he say? It is finished. It's accomplished. I've come out. The pains of hell took hold of me, and I grief and trouble found. But it's over. It's done. He emerged. He is the first person ever to experience hell and to come out and to tell what that was like. His soul was set free. There was a second part to that too. There was the grave. Part of his death meant that he would be laid in the grave. Now, I suppose onlookers didn't understand that the triumph was already really secured. I'm sure when Christ exclaimed on the cross, um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can quite believe that all his enemies there thought, ah, yes, it's good to hear him say that. Good to hear him say that. (coughs) Of course he's forsaken. These, that exclamation from our Lord's lips coupled with the fact that he didn't come down from the cross, were a confirmation to them that the powers he had been using all along were satanic and devilish powers. And that God did not deliver him. They taunted him at the cross, let him deliver him. He trusted in God, well, let him deliver him then. There was no deliverance. And when he shouted out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a kind of confirmation to them that says, We were right all along. You you think this is the Messiah. Look at him, cursed and damned and having to exclaim that he's forsaken. 
They certainly thought it was finished. And even when he said, it is finished, they probably understood that as a kind of, well, it's over at least. Not so. But for them, the grave was a marvellous thing. In he goes, and the stone is shut over it. We're told in the scriptures that Pilate said, seal the stone. So the Roman seal of authority is placed on the stone keeping it shut, which is essentially saying, nobody go near this tomb. Nobody open this tomb. That is again a kind of devilish or satanic or an anti-Christian way of saying, he's not just dead, he's buried and he's finished and he will never be seen again. With the seal of the mighty power of Rome, Jesus is gone, and gone for good. Ah, but not so. Not so. On that first Lord's Day morning, that first New Covenant Sabbath morning, that seal was broken, and the stone was rolled aside. Interestingly, not by Jesus himself, who could have rolled it aside, or who could have even passed through it. Seal is broken by God, who sent angels to break it. It's God's way of saying, justice put him in there, now let justice take him out. He paid the price, nothing left to pay. Death held him for a while, death cannot hold him, death released him. The grave opened. Let there be an exodus. Let there be an exodus. And the second exodus at Jerusalem is just that. If the first was an exodus from the pains and the power of hell, the second exodus is from the grave. There's a third exodus too. And this is one that Elijah will well understand. And that's when the 40 days of renewed teaching and appearances are finished. It was time for him to be received up into glory. And you remember that he stands on the mount in Bethany and he blesses the people. And in the posture of a benediction, with his hands raised, he is simply, visibly raised up from among the people. We're told that he, that he went into a cloud. Notice again, that doesn't mean that um, he, he went into the clouds as we think of it. This is the cloud coming by. This is, in a way, I've often wondered, is it a bit like the prodigal and the father coming out to meet him? Not as though Christ is a prodigal, but it's as though the father meets him uh, and conveys him home. He comes home in a cloud of glory. Psalm 24, I think, alludes to that uh, when the Lord of hosts the Lord of glory the King of glory wants entrance into the new Jerusalem above he's finished his work and it's all over and the last exodus to accomplish at Jerusalem the Mount of Olives is just in Jerusalem he is received up into glory now there's a way in which these three Exodus events are so tied in with what Moses and Elijah had. Well, think of Moses particularly. Moses' task, of course, was to take a people that were lost under the lash, 
suffering and to bring them to liberty and a land full of milk and honey. Is that not what the Lord's done? Is that not what the Lord's done? And is that not what Moses and Elijah are effectively saying to Christ? You're in this for your people's sake. I was called back to Egypt, Moses says, for my people's sake. You're here for your people's sake. And your people don't want to listen really to what you have to say about your suffering and your death. Well, I I remember that too. I remember that too. About them not wanting to listen to what I was so willing to do for them. But you will accomplish this work. You will deliver people from their sin and from their misery. The hell that you will undergo is nothing to be compared with in connection with the sufferings that I went through. Nothing. Mine are nothing in comparison with yours. But you'll come through them. And you'll bring your people out. You'll take them through the Red Sea. And you'll bring them into the glory where you will be yourself. You will find yourself soon in the bowels of hell, at least in your soul. Not in your person, but in your soul. But that will be over. And that will be eclipsed by joy. It's not just what they said, but briefly how they said it. Because fellowship is like that. When we're in a good fellowship, it's a fellowship of love. It doesn't just consist of words. It consists of kindness and care and consideration. And everything Moses and Elijah say here, they say with understanding and appreciation. Now that's so important. We all know what that's like to find, you know, when you're passing through something that's really difficult and people don't understand it. It's really hard. There's no one around who understands it or who appreciates it. No one did for the Lord. No one. He will tread the winepress alone and of the people there will be none to help. Peter doesn't understand suffering and death. James doesn't understand suffering and death and neither does John. But how different they are. They understand. Why? Because they're perfect in holiness already. <coughs> Moses has had one and a half thousand years to think and to <coughs> contemplate about these things. And Elijah 802. The suffering and death of the Lord was their theme and delight all these years. And it was the most wonderful moment in heaven when they saw the incarnation. The Son of God coming to do the work which they knew was the basis of their own salvation. (coughs) A wonderful thing. They spoke about it. In fact, you know what occurred to me when I was thinking about this? When they come down here and they start to speak of what Christ was going to accomplish in heaven, what actually came to my mind is, some of of you here will will remember, um, it's good to mention names all the time really, but Remember an elder Murdo McKinnon who used to uh, be in Stornoway and uh, the Lord um, gave him, I would consider anyway, as far as I can tell, what was a, a remarkable uh, gift of prayer. There, there was something about his prayer. Well, the way I felt about it, and I spoke about it to a couple of other people and they agreed, it was like this, that yes, it had a beginning and an ending, but you felt almost as though it didn't have a beginning and an ending. You felt as though you were actually being admitted into a prayer that was somehow going on all the time. It's hard to explain, I suppose, but that's just how it felt. You felt that 
For a moment you were just being admitted into something that was constantly going on. Now, <laughs> that's what I thought of in connection with this. I thought, there's a sense in which the Father didn't have to give Moses and Elijah these words at all. It's their theme anyway. What else is their theme of glory? It's as though God says to them, see this conversation that you are having in heaven. Go down and have it on the earth. And have it in the presence of my son. And let it console him in his humiliation. And there is a consolation in it to know that here are two people who understand. They understand. And what's more, as I mentioned a minute ago, they appreciate it too. And how couldn't they? How couldn't they? The very glory that they wore was dependent on the decease that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Put it this way. Suppose for a moment, just think philosophically and theologically, psychologically, suppose for a moment Christ did not consecrate himself. Supposing as the shadow of darkness came on him, he said, I'm not going into that. Supposing he said, let this cup pass from me, and that's my final prayer. Or supposing he called upon the twelve legions of angels to come down from heaven and to extricate him from the situation. What's the consequence for Moses and Elijah? In a split second, in the twinkling of an eye, their glory disappears. Their status and dignity disappear. Their knowledge and understanding and appreciation, their holiness disappears. Their love disappears. Their hope and their joy and they are immediately moved from the Mount of Transfiguration into the depths and bowels of hell. It's as simple and as profound as that. How could they not appreciate it? How could they not appreciate the willingness of this Saviour to consecrate himself and to go to Jerusalem for their sakes? And not only would that be true of them, it would be true of every single soul at that present time in glory. The hundreds of them, the thousands and the myriads, all lose their state and condition and immediately be cast into the bowels of hell. You know, when I say that, I don't mean to say by that they were, that they were in fear that such a thing would happen. I don't mean that at all. But I do mean that they did appreciate that what they had was due to him. And you know, at the end of the day, sometimes it's pride that wants to be appreciated. You know, when we say, well, you know, I'd like to be appreciated, 99% of the time that there's a good dollop of pride in that. But it is good to be appreciated, uh, especially for our Saviour, who had no pride, who did what he did for others and not for himself. It was good to have at least two voices on the earth who appreciated that he was going to suffer and appreciated that he was going to die. The day would come when Peter, James and John were sorry that they had ever not understood such a thing. But certainly they did. And I suppose you could say too, and I'll close with this, that even the very presence of Moses and Elijah in that respect is an assurance to our Saviour that he will endure, he will persevere, yes, he will suffer these things, but he will enter 
into his glory. And by himself, he will purge our sins. He will purge our sins. And he will give us an exodus from sin. He'll give us an exodus from our grave and an exodus from this earth into the heaven to come. Because these exodus events uh, were for people, people like yourselves. It's no strange thing that when this glory disappears, uh, only the Lord Jesus is left and there's a peace about his soul. Sure there was. In Gethsemane he can pass from sweating blood to being in perfect peace. The key to that was prayer and a word from God, which is always true of us too. Our key from passing to anxiety to peace is always prayer. In just a while we'll uh, be coming to, well I'm conscious that the way that churches are uh, sometimes set up today, people are, are sitting at the Lord's table anyway. Um, but we will be coming to partake of the elements anyway in a while. And uh, it's still customary to, as they say, uh, fence the table or to declare who should be around this table and who should remain away. Uh, the the basic truth governing these things is that the Lord's table is for the Lord's people. It is really as simple as that. In other words, those who have come to the table of the Lord have their own exodus in their own lives. They have had an exodus out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. They have had an exodus out of the old life and into a new life. And I was thinking, I, I referred to this in, in prayer, I think, on Thursday or on Friday. I mentioned in prayer the fact that the, that the Lord's people love the things that carry his name. And I thought in some ways that that would be a sufficient thing to bring before you here today as you sit and say, well, should I be at this table or not? How do you relate to the things that bear the Lord's name? Um, if you are Christians, you carry the Lord's name. But you will also have a special relationship to everything that also carries the Lord's name. Let's take, for example, the Lord's word. Now, if you have a right to be at the table here today, you can say that the word of the Lord is the most precious word in your life. It is your authority, your guide, and more than that, it's the bread of your life. You esteem it more than your necessary food. Is that true of you? Is that the relationship between you and the Bible? Are the words that he speaks to you in it, spirit and life? I remember when I became a Christian, the Bible was completely transformed. And I'm sure you can say, if you are a Christian, that that has happened for you too. You have a special relationship with the Lord's Word. And then again, you have a special relationship with the Lord's house. Now, of course, the Lord's house, as far as fabric can be concerned, it can be anywhere. But it is where his people dwell and gather together to worship him publicly. And that's the habitation of the house that we have come 
to love well. We delight in being in the gatherings of public worship where God himself is present, where he inhabits his praise, speaks to us in the reading, and especially proclaims to us in the preaching. Now, do you love that house? Is it the most precious place for you to be in, where God appears in the assembly of his saints? If so, the Lord's table is for you. A special relationship with the Lord's word and with his house, and also with his people. Now, the Lord's people can sometimes be trying on the Lord's people. Uh, Someone once famously said, well, I don't always like them, but I do love them. There's a lot of truth in that. And as well as thinking of the fact that they can sometimes be problematic to you, so are you to them. I often need to remember myself, if someone is awkward with me, that maybe I have been awkward with them. But these are peripheral matters. These things go to the heart of the matter. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. (coughs) Let me put it this way to you. The more you see Christ in a brother or sister, do you love them more or less? Oh, you love them more. If you see less of Christ in them than you did before, does that not grieve you deep down so that you want to see more of Christ in them than you did before? Yes, it does. Is the desire of your heart that they grow in knowledge and grace, even as you want to grow in knowledge and grace? Yes, it is. Which people do you love most on the face of the earth? It is the Lord's people. Yes, it is. And we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Give me a man or a woman who delights in the Saviour, delights in the worship of his name, and delights in his word, and I delight in them, as I hope they delight in me. Last of all, that is the Lord's day. I remember a time when this day was very long, very long, and sad to say, dull. It was me who was dull. There was nothing lacking in brightness and splendor about the Lord's day, but I love the day now. And if you love a day that is set aside for him, if you love a day when you step aside from the world, from its recreation as well as its employment, a day when you step apart into the fellowship of his people, into his house and into his word, if you love such a day, then you love the Lord of that day. And you can say, I love the Lord. I said that last of all, but last of all, there's the Lord's table. Do you want to be here? Do you want to be at the Lord's table? The Lord's people want to be at the Lord's table. The bread and the wine are his appointment. Through them he communicates grace and help to your soul and refresh your memory about a precious death and about abundant life. Because the wine speaks of life too, as does bread. You want to be there. The Lord's table, the Lord's word, the Lord's house, the Lord's people, and the Lord's day. We'll read our warrant for observing the Lord's Supper as we find it in 1 Corinthians 11 and at verse 23. Where 
Paul was directed by the Spirit to correct abuses of the supper that had come into the congregation in Corinth. And he reminds them in verse 23 of that solemn night, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That's the apostolic tradition, received and given. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we'll follow his example and we are at the table. Let's remain seated for prayer. Lord, O oh God, it is indeed our privilege to give thanks for every good received in this life. And day by day we are recipients of common grace and saving grace. Much kindness shown in so many ways. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would not be hard or ungrateful. And especially so when we come uh, to receive this gift, this mercy, and this sacrament, this pledge of your everlasting love for your people, sealed up in the body and blood of our precious Lord. We ask that our hearts may be humbled and that we would open our mouth wide and that you would satisfy us with what is good, and that we would delight ourselves with it. We pray not to approach these symbols as mere remembrance tokens, but rather as messengers of grace to our own hearts when we receive them, being accompanied by the love and the power of the Holy Spirit. How good it is to take Christ in the Word and to receive him also in the sacrament. May we see ourselves participating in the one body and in the one blood. And we are here together <coughs> as the one body of the Lord's people and yet bound mysteriously to all his people throughout the world. And we know that a day will come when we shall at last eat and drink together in an unbroken fellowship. But for us now we must go from one place of strength unto another. And may this ordinance be that for us. And we cannot but look back as well as look forward. How many wonderful providences took us here. How many Christians 
spoke to us, witnessed and testified. How many sermons we heard and counsels we received. How many encouragements in order to bring us to this place today. And we proclaim the Lord's death to all who care to look on. And we are thankful today that there are those who are onlookers at this table, who have the desire to come to God's house, even if they do not yet see themselves, having an right or an entitlement to these things, you have placed it in their hearts to be here. And we know that there is no better place on earth to be found today than to be found in the house of God. And may the things which they see from afar be things that are yet blessed to them. And may the day come, and speedily too, when they join with us at this table of the Lord. Now take this bread and this wine, and may it become memorials, living memorials, of the one who is the bread of life to our souls. Overcome our weakness, our sense of uncleanness, our sense of unfitness, and everything that attaches to us. Remind us that this table is primarily speaking of Christ. And we are not testifying to who we are, but to who he is and what he has become for us. Not to us at the table, Lord, not to us, but do thou glory give to thy great name, even for thy truth and mercy's sake. In Christ's name, Amen. Just a word and a very brief word before we partake of the uh, elements. Um, the one thing I haven't mentioned in connection with the experience of the transfiguration is the fear uh, that's mentioned on two distinct occasions. The disciples were very afraid. It's no wonder because they were awed at the presence of God and what they had seen and heard. And There's always a fear that needs to be present in the Christian's heart. But there are also fears that need to be banished and it's interesting that when the glory cloud had gone, Peter and James and John were face down on the ground. But the Lord came and he touched them and he told them, fear not, fear not, don't be afraid. If you scan through your Bible and look up a concordance, look up the words afraid or fear, you'll be amazed at how often don't be afraid or fear not occurs in the scriptures. And in connection with that, I was thinking of one little expression, and I think I refer to it today, that our Lord used when he was speaking to his disciples. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Uh, little flock. In one respect, the Lord's flock is not little. And in glory there are well, there's a multitude that no man can number. But they seem to exist as little flocks in different places and at different times. And this is a little flock here today. It's just a little flock. Sometimes you can feel perhaps that we don't really matter all that much. We're not all that important. 
Well, that's not how the Lord sees it. That's not how the Lord thinks, and it's not how the Lord speaks. Little flock, he says, don't be afraid. There are many fears that we can have, and they range very widely. A fear that we might not make it to the end ourselves. A fear that we might bring disgrace or shame to the Lord's cause. Fear sometimes that we're deceiving ourselves. A fear that we might be a hindrance rather than a help to other people around us. This fear and that fear banish them. Put them away. This is a table where the Lord takes the weak and the needy and he helps to build them up and to make them strong. To go from one strength to another as they make their way home. Uh, I refer to that text a couple of times. They from strength and weary go still forward unto strength. Remember Spurgeon says, I, I'm pretty sure anyway, but it's in the treasury of David, Spurgeon says, in what way do God's people go from strength to strength? And he says, well, the Hebrew here, he says, can just as well be read like this, that they go from strengthening to strengthening. And you know, when I took it like that, it did me the world of good. There's a way in which I can't see myself going from strength to strength. But there's definitely a way in which I see myself going from one strengthening to another. One place of help to another place of help and to another place of help. And this is a place of help. The last thing I want to say is this. Uh, don't be afraid, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the king. You know, it's very hard to get away from the idea that we're tolerant it's very hard to get away from the idea that God grudgingly admits us. As though he has a look at us and says, well, I'll just allow you to sit there. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and everything that belongs to it, including this bread and including this wine. You don't get the impression that David in Psalm 23 saw any reluctance on the part of the provider of the feast to welcome the guests there. My head thou dost with oil anoint, and my cup overflows, and goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me, and in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. Let these promises and these assurances of the love of God for your soul fill your heart as you take the bread and as you take the wine. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord took bread and he broke it. Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after supper he took the cup also, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, sealed by my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. So take it, brethren, eat.
of your kindness and pledges of a love that will continue, one that will never fail, a love that will ensure that we overcome all things and inherit the kingdom. We look forward to being with our Saviour in glory. We realise that this table is him condescending still to come down to ourselves to meet with us in the wilderness as it were and to say that he will bring us into the land of promise. And although there are fears that are quickly banished, they very often return and we pray that you would indeed be our protector and our keeper. Keep us from doing harm or being a hindrance or a stumbling block. Help us to be exhorters and encouragers of one another on our pilgrimage heavenward. Enable us to catch something ourselves of the glory that came upon the Saviour. And enable us to radiate that to others, that others might know in our speech and life that we have been with Jesus. This world is passing quickly and we are going home. And we pray that these things might quicken our steps. Take away anything that may have been said or done inconsistent with the blessed truth and accept us, we pray, in the Redeemer's name. Amen. <coughs> Let's just uh, bring your service to a close now by singing in <coughs> Psalm 73. <coughs> Verse 23, well-known words, words that should be precious to us. Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee. And of course, he is with us because he does hold us by the right hand. Thou dost me hold by my right hand and still upholdest me. Can we say that after so many years following? Thou with thy counsel while I live, Wilt me conduct and guide, and to thy glory afterward receive me to abide. These are great words and a great hope. Uh, 23 to 26, we stand to sing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. 